Well, good morning. And I'd like to say happy Father's Day to all the fathers in the room. You know, I live with a little guy, uh, for those of you who don't know, my youngest son, James, um, he has Down syndrome and he is my buddy. I'm telling you what. Uh, and the one thing about James is every holiday that comes around, he celebrates with abandon. He took me to lunch and paid for my lunch yesterday, and he said, Happy Father's Day. I said, James, let's go on a walk. I, he, he hates to walk. This is the, he said, I hate walk. That's evil. No, it's not evil. It's a good thing. And so um, I, I said, let, let's, go to the, let's go to the little lake. We have a little lake near our house. And let's just, no, no, I, I, I don't like that. Well, you know, being the sweet father that I am, I forced him to go with me. And so we went and I took some pictures and uh, I watched him over the time that we were like walking around this little lake over the bridge and sat down at some picnic tables that, you know, he, he, he began to like sort of change a little bit, got a little bit more happy with me. And, um, and then he said, oh, dad, I like this place. This is a good place to uh, propose. So he practiced. He went out on the sidewalk and knelt down and pretended he was proposing. That guy scares me to death. But he's so much fun. He, he got up this morning and came and said, Dad, happy, happy Father's Day. Happy Father's Day. I'm telling you what. Being a father is the hardest, most important, and the best job that I have. I, I'm always so shocked at how much I love my kids and now my grandkids, and it is such a gift from God. And when I think about this whole idea of Father's Day, you know, I'm reminded that um, this whole concept of fatherhood flows as a central theme out of the scripture. In fact, when Jesus taught us to pray, he instructed us to address God as our Father, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. May your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And while Jesus was here, he told stories about fathers and sons, and perhaps the most well-known of all is the story of the prodigal son. Now this son did everything wrong. I mean, he was disrespectful, he was rebellious, he squandered the family's wealth and was destitute and hungry and, and all alone when he finally decided he was gonna go return to his father and he even practiced his speech in advance. Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants because he figured out that his father was better to his servants than anyone else he knew. In verse 20, the father responds, he arose and came to his father, and when his, he, he was still a great way off, his father saw him and had compassion and ran and fell on his neck and kissed him. And he restored him. The message of Jesus was that the father who had created all things and rules over all has come to get his children. Wow, that, that just seems so personal, doesn't it? So full of love and, wow, that's, this is the God that we serve. This message is for everyone. It's for the fathers and the sons and the daughters and all families that God so loved us that he sent his only begotten son and Jesus came to be the lamb of God who would take away the sin of the world because God 
wants to be reconciled to us no matter what we have done. So, happy Father's Day. Um, you know, I, I think all of us men, we, we'd love to be the hero, right? We'd love to get everything right and bless our kids and... I remember as a kid, superheroes were so inspiring to me. <clears throat> I mean, who didn't want to be a hero as a, as a youngster? Um, and I remember that the, the one that I, I loved the most was, um, was Superman. Now, this is way back when, okay, I was six years old. Superman could fly. I would often go get an old towel uh, out of the cabinet and tied around my neck, and then I would run around the yard fast enough to make what I would hope the cape to fly. One day, I had this, this idea come to me that I could do better than just run around with this cape and pretend that I was flying. I, I could actually try to fly. So it occurred to me that this was a good idea. I would go get on the swing that my dad had made out of this thick board and tied it to the, the, the roof of the carport. And so I got on there, cape on, and I began to swing as fast as I could, as high as I could possibly swing. And, and my idea was I was, gonna, I was gonna launch myself into the air, and I was gonna fly, and then I would like float down like Superman with a graceful landing on my feet. So I got going, and when I released, I came down all right, I came down with a thud, bang, and by this time I'm turned around and I had a full view of the swing as it swung back and then before I knew it, it's coming back at me and it popped me in the lip, the blood began to flow, the screams began to go and before I knew it, I was whisked up and taken to the emergency room for some stitches on my upper lip and so I learned something that day. I learned that I wasn't actually Superman, that I really couldn't fly and you know, that pain stayed with me to remember it's not everything is as you imagined. Um, it turns out that Jesus is our hero. Also in scripture it says that we are strongest when we admit our weakness. I don't know if there's any other men in the room who want to be strong, but admitting our weakness, that's a whole other story. The apostle Paul says when I am weak, that's when I'm strong. Because that's when I access and feel the grace of God moving powerfully in me. So if you're a father here today, I just want to say, ask him for help. Ask him to help you be the father you want to be. It's not too late. One small move, one simple conversation, one carefully written note, one phone call. God could use that, because you know what? He's the best father there is, and we learn to be a good father by following the father who is out ahead of us. Today we're gonna look in Mark chapter seven, uh, Mark chapter six, I mean, and it's the story of Jesus walking on the water. 
How many of you have ever heard the story of Jesus walking on the water? Raise your hand. I just want to just see if what I'm assuming is correct. That, you know, the, the, probably the most famous uh, miracle of Jesus that's recorded in all four Gospels, as we looked at last week, is Jesus feeding the 5,000, which really meant uh, 5,000 men plus women and children. So we're easily above 10,000 people. And with two loaves, five fishes, he lifts them up and prays, hands them to the disciples, and they distribute it to all of the people till everybody had all that they wanted to eat. And they collected 12 baskets full and um, of fragments, 12 baskets full. They didn't begin with 12 baskets full of anything. They had five loaves and two fishes. And then, and then um, the, the, next, the next part of, of this is that Jesus walks on the water, which is what we're gonna look at. I mean, it is so amazing when you realize that what was going on there was that the, the disciples had been a part of ministry, participated in the miracle, but in verse 52 of Mark chapter six, this is what Jesus is thinking, and this is why Jesus sent them out on the ship, on the boat, knowing that they were gonna get caught in a storm and be desperate and think they were dying and would have to go walk to rescue them. What, 52, this is what he says, for they had not understood about the loaves because their heart was hardened. Here are the disciples walking around with Jesus, actually doing the work of ministry, casting out demons, healing the sick, watching and participating in the feeding of the 5,000, and they're still not getting it. I mean, they're all, they're all focused on the miracle, but a miracle is a sign that's pointing to something much bigger than what's going on. The feeding of the 5,000 was, it was, it was done and gone in a flash and everybody was hungry by, by six o'clock that night, most likely. But what that was doing is that Jesus was showing them that divine power, power large enough to take five loaves, two fishes, and feed over 10,000 people was invested in him and Newsflash, guys, this is about the fact that God has come, that Jesus was God. The crowd was thrilled with the meal. In fact, and I'm, I'm hesitating, I don't want to go into John and all the other, other, other gospels, I'm trying to stay true to Mark's concise treatment of this event for the... To, to get his focus, okay, but we do know from John that this crowd, they were gonna take Jesus and by force make him the king because they're like, oh man, this is the guy we've been looking for. He can, he can meet our needs and give us our desires and he has such power that he certainly could overthrow the Herod and Pilate and all of the other Romans and in, in even, in fact, the Roman government. We're gonna make him our king. He, be, he will be the great political leader of Israel that we're all hoping for. And, and Jesus was not gonna have any of that. He had not come to become a political leader. He had come to save the world. His focus was far bigger than what they wanted. Somehow this crowd, as well as the disciples, had not really come to terms with the fact that Jesus, the man in front of them, was God himself. And he was doing things that God did. Jesus stands in front of these people as the good shepherd. And you know, the good shepherd, he, he feeds his sheep. 
That's a characteristic of God. Who is this man? Jesus was hoping that they would see that Jesus, in fact, was God in the flesh. But the disciples seemed to be missing the point. Their hearts were hard. They did not understand. So what does Jesus do? He forcefully puts them on a boat and sends them out into the lake. And he, Jesus then returns, dismisses the crowd, goes up to the mountain, and he begins to pray. So let's read what happens in Mark chapter 6, beginning in verse 45. Immediately he made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side, to Bethsaida, while he sent the multitude away. And when he had sent them away, he departed to the mountain to pray, now when evening came, the boat was in the middle of the sea and he was alone on the land. Then he saw them straining at rowing for the wind was against them. Now about the fourth watch that of the night, he came to them walking on the sea and would have passed them by. And when they saw him walking on the sea, they supposed he, it was a ghost and cried out. For they all saw him and were troubled, but immediately he talked with them and said to them, listen to these words, very important, be of good cheer, it is I, do not be afraid. Then he went in, up into the boat with them and the wind ceased and they were greatly amazed in themselves beyond measure and marveled. They went to the next level of amazement for they had not understood the loaves because their heart was hardened. The first point I have is this, is that it, it is sometimes God's plan to allow trouble. You see, these disciples were doing exactly what Jesus told them to do. They were, in the, they were actually in the center of God's will. And we have so many ideas floating around the church world that says if you're in the will of God, then God's not gonna let trouble come to you, that you can just be sure that everything is gonna be great. And while I do believe that when you're following the Lord's will, the only trouble that can come to you is trouble he allows. I mean, you're not having to deal with the trouble of your own sin and rebellion, because that just compounds things. But it, it is not true that if you're following God that you will not find yourself in the middle of the storm like these disciples. And in fact, they were precisely where Jesus wanted to, them to be. It was between three and six a.m. It was in the middle of the night and, and all of a sudden these men, several of whom were professional fishermen and good boatmen, found themselves being in a boat and everything was out of control. They were carried into the middle of the lake, which was not the plan. Their plan was to just kind of row along the shore, the, the four miles to, to where they were going. But now, they, they, the wind was against them, nothing was working, and in fact, they were being carried out into the middle of the, of the sea and they thought they were gonna die. Jesus was up on the mountain praying. What is so interesting is in verse 48, he, he's in the mountain praying. They are on the sea, probably four miles out into the middle of the sea, in the middle of the storm, in the dark, and it says, then he saw them straining at rowing, for the wind was against them. Now, I'm gonna to have to admit to you that one of the constant conversations that Cindy and I have regarding my youngest son, James, is from time to time, I'll be at church, and she will come to me, and she will say, now, Eddie, remember, I've got a meeting to go to, 
So here he is. He is yours. Don't forget, he's yours. Because she knows me. I remember one day when he was little, um, I, I forgot that he was mine and that I was the parent in charge. And I looked around and I could not find James. Now I'm telling you, this is a big building. If you run at the, the, the correct pace and you're a parent, you can circle the building and never find your child if they're going the same. Seriously, I'm, I've met many parents. Man, I can't find my kids. Yeah, I, I understand. That happens here. Well, James was gone and he was a little guy, and at this point, I am getting a little panicked because I don't want him to go outside. He had this tendency to want to just go, and so I saw some people, and I said, have you seen James? They said, no, Pastor, we haven't. You, you, did you lose him? Yeah, I, I lost him. Like, two things are in my mind right now at that point. Number one, I don't want anything bad to happen to James. Secondly, I don't know that I could face Cindy and say, I'm sorry, I lost him. Okay, well these sweet people said we will help you find them, so they start circling the building. It just so happened that I took this direction and I, and I came to the foyer just as I saw this little guy go to walk out the front door. Oh great, go out the door toward the highway. I grabbed him and I, I rescued him. I'd like to say that because it's Father's Day. <clears throat> So I wonder what the disciples were thinking. They're in the middle of the storm. They gotta be thinking, what's going on, guys? I mean, we have some serious fishermen types who have been on the sea for many times, and they thought, wow, we did exactly what Jesus said, and now we're scared to death and think we might die. You can't get more fearful than that, I'm just saying. I think Jesus has forgotten all about us. But he didn't. He, because he was God, could see all the way through the darkness and the storm, and he could see them as they were struggling. Uh, and, and, I mean, really, you think that Jesus, who came to save the world and handpicked 12 men, sent them on a boat, and then forgot about them? That he was going to have to, the next morning, say, oh, too bad, they died. I guess we'll start all over. Of course not. Why is that important? Because when you're in the middle of a storm, you've got to remember, he can see you. Even if you can't see him, he can see you. Jesus is the one that says, hey, you gotta understand that even a sparrow doesn't fall without your heavenly father knowing that happened. He knows every hair on your head. He knows you're rising up and you're sitting down. So when you're scared to death and you're wondering if God has forgotten you, remember he hasn't. Jesus was not distracted in his moment of private devotion and prayer that he had forgotten the disciples. No, no, he actually put them right where they needed to be. He sees them. He knows what's going on. 
He wants them to feel the desperation and helplessness that is part of the human experience. Have you been afraid lately? Have you had a disappointment that broke your heart? Have you lost a job or didn't get the job and you don't know what to do? And you thought God was going to be with you, but it doesn't feel like he is. Remember, he is with you. He never doesn't see you. So in the middle of the fear, you can run to that place and find strength. Second thing that happens is that Jesus comes to help. About the fourth watch in the night, he came to them walking on the sea and would have passed them by um, And when they saw him walking on the sea, they supposed it was a ghost and cried out. For they all saw him and were troubled. Immediately he talked with them and said, Be of good cheer, it is I, do not be afraid. And then he went into the boat with them and the wind ceased and they were greatly amazed in themselves beyond measure and they marveled. So Jesus watches them from afar and as he watches, he comes to the place where he says, Okay, it's time for me to go. I'm going. Now, how's he going to get there? He doesn't have a boat because the disciples have the boat. Well, that doesn't stop Jesus because Jesus is actually God who can see four miles into the sea and know exactly what's going on with these guys. He, he's going to go get to them. So what does he do? He just walks on the water. The storm and the wind don't, don't bother him. I mean, he starts walking toward them. He's unaffected by all of those circumstances. And You know, what what was he doing? He was showing these men who were hard to believe that he was God. They thought they might be taking a nice, relaxing boat right on the Sea of Galilee, but that's not what happened. Instead, they were scared to death and wondered if they were going to die. It's interesting that they, they, they saw Jesus coming toward them, and they thought he was a ghost. Now, there is this kind of superstition that says that just before doom happens, a ghost would appear and seal the deal, and you knew it was all over. That was a superstition. So here they are. They already think that they may die in the middle of the sea this time. And now a ghost is appearing, and it confirms their greatest fear that, man, it's probably all over. And then... As he comes closer, it says that he's about to pass by. Now, that's a much debated phrase. And is is, was what was Jesus going to walk all the way to the disciples, pass by, and not even say anything? No, of course not. Someone said it might be better translated that he he walked alongside of them as they're on the boat. He knew what he was doing. They're terrified. They're screaming. These are grown men screaming. And Jesus says, he speaks to them, be of good cheer, it is I, do not be afraid. Would you say those three things with me? Because this is going to help us all if we could remember this. This is what Jesus says. Ready? Here we go. Be of good cheer, it is I, do not be afraid. Jesus very very powerfully reveals the fact that he is God by walking on the water. 
I would imagine some of you are pretty good at skiing on the water down at Table Rock Lake. I'm impressed. But one thing I also know is when the boat stops or you fall off your skis, you start sinking in the water. You don't have the option to say, well, that was fun, but I'm, gonna, I'm just going to walk back to the shore. You can't do it. You'll have to swim. Job says in Job 9.8 that God alone spreads out the heavens and treads on the waves of the sea. This is a characteristic of God. Only God can walk on water. Now, the dialogue of Jesus' conversation, it is I, is actually very reminiscent of a time when God was revealing himself to Moses at the burning bush, telling Moses, you are gonna go and deliver my people out of the oppression, uh, from the oppression of Pharaoh in Egypt. And Moses, okay, it's a long, that's another sermon, but Moses finally asked God, well, okay, who am I gonna say you are? And God says, I am who I am. In Greek, it's ego eimi, which is the same words Jesus says as he tells the disciples in this moment, be of good cheer. The I am is here. He was showing them, I am God. It was in that moment of the greatest fear that they saw the goodness and the glory of God in Jesus and grew to understand that Jesus was God. Third, it's important to notice that Jesus shows up when we are hard-hearted. You ever been hard-hearted? I think we have. I know we have. I mean, which is kind of amazing because um, these disciples had been working with Jesus. They had watched his power. They had participated in ministry. I mean, they, they, were, they were thinking Jesus was somehow connected to God and had great power, but they, di they didn't understand that he was God. But in this moment, this, in this moment, they now discover Jesus actually is God. Now, I don't know about you, but I have this idea that God is probably gonna come close and help me out when I am hitting all, on all cylinders spiritually. I, I don't think that God is really coming to help me when I'm feeling overwhelmed with the guilt of my last failure. Um, I think that God is probably gonna be closer to me when I'm doing it all right and correct. Do you ever feel that? I, I don't know that I sense the presence of God when I'm like, oh man, why did I say that? Why did I do that? Oh man, I, I'm supposed to forgive, but I am so angry at that person. Okay, do, do, do you think that God is gonna come close? In fact, he will. The conviction that we feel is an evidence of the presence of God. So don't think that just because you're not getting everything right that God is not here. He goes to the disciples because they are hard-hearted 
to rescue them out of their hard-heartedness and to deliver them. Jesus reveals his divinity at this high level, not when they were believing and faith-filled, but when they were unbelieving and confused. When their hearts were hard, Jesus comes to open up their hearts. So remember that when you're in trouble, it may be because God's got something to teach you. James says, count it all joy when you fall into all kinds of trouble. That's not my first response. But when you remember that God always sees your trouble and that he will come to you in your trouble, that is good news. You know, the truth is this, that um, I think we feel the presence and the power and the goodness of God most when we are at our weakest. When things are out of control and we don't know what to do and we fall before God and say, help me. Please help me. In those moments when he picks us up and he helps us, we feel the power of God. You know, the Apostle Paul, he said, um, he said that he welcomed his struggles, even the thorn in the flesh. He gloried in his weakness because he says, when I am weak, then I am strong. Because at that moment, God's grace is sufficient. You know, over the years, um, I've grown to, I don't, I don't ever stop getting afraid. But I do grow to um, have this wonderful sense of security because I look back at my life and I see that God has showed up in all the worst times and his track record is good and I have no idea how he's gonna help me this time but he's helped me in the past and that's my hope and that's why I cry out to him, please help me. That's why Paul writes in Romans 8, yet in all things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us for I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present or things to come, nor height, nor depth, or any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. When he is our hope, when he is our strength, we are forever secure. And that's what these disciples learned that night. I don't know if there's there may be, yeah, I think this, some of you could remember the name of a man, Chuck Colson. Anybody remember that name? Chuck Colson was, uh, served as a counselor to the President of the United States, Richard Nixon. However, he was um, 
implicated in the Watergate scandal, and he went to jail for his participation in those things. And then, in that season, when all was lost, he comes to Christ. 30 years after that, his coming to Christ, he writes this. I visited Tom Phillips, president of Raytheon Company, at his home outside of Boston. I had represented Raytheon before, going to the White House. I was about to start again, but I visited for another reason as well. I knew Tom had become a Christian, and he seemed so different, and I wanted to ask him what happened. That night, he read to me from Mere Christianity by C.S. Lewis, particularly a chapter about the great sin that is pride. A proud man is always walking through life, looking down on other people and other things, said Lewis. As a result, he cannot see something above himself, immeasurably superior, God. Tom that night told me about encountering Christ in his own life, he didn't realize it, but I was in the depths of deep despair over Watergate, watching the president I had helped for four years flounder in office. I'd also heard that I might become a target of the investigation as well. In short, my world was collapsing. That night, as Tom was telling me about Jesus, I listened attentively, but didn't let on my own need. Then he offered to pray, and I thanked him, but said no. I'd see him sometime after I read C.S. Lewis's book. But when I got into the car that night, I couldn't drive out of the driveway. Ex-Marine captain, White House tough guy, I was crying too hard, crying out to God. I didn't know what to say. I just knew I needed Jesus, and he came into my life. And Chuck Colson writes, that was 30 years ago. I've been reflecting of late on the things God has done over that time. As I think about life, the beginning of prison ministry, our work in the justice area, our international, international ministry that reaches a uh, uh, hundred countries, and the work of Wilberforce Forum and Breakpoint, I have come to appreciate the doctrine of providence. It's not the world's idea of fate or luck, but the reality of God's divine intervention. He orchestrates the lives of his children to accomplish his good purposes. God has carefully ordered my steps. I couldn't have imagined when I was in prison that I would someday be going back to the White House with ex-offenders as I did on June 18th, or that we'd be running prisons that have an 8% recidivism rate, and that Breakpoint would be a daily heard, would be heard daily on a thousand outlets across the United States and on the internet. The truth that is uppermost in my mind today is that God isn't finished. As long as we're alive, he's at work in our lives. He can, we, we can live our lives of obedience in any field because God providentially arranges the circumstances of our lives to achieve his objectives. And that leads to the greatest joy I found in life. As I look back on my life, it's not having been to Buckingham Palace to receive the Templeton Prize or getting honorary degrees or writing books. The greatest joy is to see how God has used my life to touch the lives of others, people hurting and in need, 
It's been a long time since the dark days of Watergate. I'm still astounded that God could take someone who was infamous in, in the Watergate scandal, soon to be a convicted felon, and take him into his family and then order his steps in the way he has with me. God touched me at the moment in that at that moment in Tom Phillips' driveway, and 30 years later, his love and kindness touch and astound me still. These disciples finally got it. Jesus wasn't just about God, Jesus was God, and Jesus had come to save them and the world, and he would do so by going to a cross and becoming the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He would die, and three days later, he would, he would raise from the dead, victorious over all of the things that we fear, death, the grave, sin, Satan, and he would lead us into his eternal life. That's what he came to do. God has come to seek and to save us. If you've never accepted Jesus as your Savior, he would save you today if you'd ask. Chuck Colson just started crying and said some kind of words that, Jesus, I need you. And you may be in the middle of a storm and you're not quite sure what to do. Oh, just reach out to him. Ask for his help. Surrender to him. He hasn't forgotten you. He knows right where you are. He's not waiting for you to be perfect to come and help because he came to these disciples when they were hard-hearted. So be of good cheer. Jesus says, I am. I am here. I would invite you to stand and bow your heads and we'll pray together.